Well, good morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help as we're going to look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as has been confessed and acknowledged a lot already today, we come before you as your people and understand ourselves to be sinners. And we understand that we even come before you at all, not on the basis of anything that we bring to the table or any kind of righteousness or merit of our own, but we come before you and and speak to you and pray and preach and sing and come to the Lord's table because you are a merciful and gracious God. So we pray that you would continue to be merciful and gracious and faithful to us as we open your word now. Come by your spirit. Help us to understand what your word says. We pray that you would give us hearts and minds that would not only hear, but understand and also rejoice over the truth of your word. Our prayer above all things this morning is that we would see Christ in Scripture. And we pray that in seeing him, we would be changed and that we would be reassured that he has accomplished everything that we could ever need. We thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So one of the things that is often discussed in the contemporary church is the idea, the principle, the concept of being relevant, of being relevant. We want to be relevant to the world. You hear this kind of language a lot in various circles in the church, in the states especially, because the church fears that we have lost our relevancy and that there's nothing that we have to say unless we kind of change the message. There's nothing that we really have to say to the world around us. But in response to that, Humbly and sincerely, our conviction here at CBC is that there is nothing more relevant than Christ and the gospel. There's nothing more relevant than Christ and the gospel. So a few questions for you this morning, just as you're assessing yourself and maybe gathering yourself from the week that you've had. Does your sin bother you? Does your sin bother you? Do you understand yourself to be a sinner And does your sin bother you? Does your sin and your conscience at points haunt you? Do you ever feel weak in the faith? Do you ever have dark seasons in your life? Are you ever discouraged? Are you ever depressed? Are you ever like highly anxious? Friend, if you've answered yes to any of that, any of them, then our text today is relevant for you. So welcome. I'm glad you're here. There's nowhere I would rather be. Let's look to God's word together as we consider these deep realities of sin and weakness and darkness of soul. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We'll be looking at a number of verses this morning. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 52. If you have your Bibles with you, that's fantastic. If you don't, don't worry about it at all. We will get the verses to the text up here on the screen, and you will be able to follow along with us. Before we go any further, I'm going to read God's word for us, all 52 verses. So buckle up. Here we go. Let's look to the word of God and listen as I read. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 
as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. 
And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. It's an interesting ending to that text. We thank God for his word. And we will look together now at these 52 verses. I want to consider these together, friends, in five scenes. Five scenes. We're just going to watch this unfold together. And we're going to trust that the Lord has much to teach us this morning. These will be of varying length. The first scene is incredibly short. Scene number one, I've entitled The Plot. The Plot Against Jesus, right? The Plot. Put your eyes on verses one and two of Mark 14. So we see that it's two days before the Passover, or it's the Passover will begin the day after tomorrow, right? It's before the Feast of Unleavened Bread will start. We'll think about that in just a minute. And the chief priests and the scribes who have pitted themselves against Christ repeatedly in his earthly ministry are seeking very pointedly how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So their intentions are very clear. And they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. It's a sinister plan, and it's shady, as we would say. It's not being done in the light at all, because it's not legitimate. It's based upon false accusation. Not only do they want Jesus removed from the scene and arrested, they want his life over. In verses 10 and 11, you can go ahead and skip down there. We're just going to consider these briefly together, because it hangs with the plot of the chief priests and the scribes. We see in those two verses, beginning in verse 10, that Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, one of the inner circle of men who had lived with Jesus and ministered with Jesus for three years, would betray him. He left the 12. He left where Christ was there in Bethany. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. And he, of his own volition, went to the chief priests in order to betray Christ. And then verse 11, again, is a, a sinister, haunting verse. When they heard it, they were glad. These are the, the religious leaders of Israel. And when they hear of this man's plan to betray Jesus, it makes them glad. I told you that scene number one would be brief. There it was. There it went. Scene number two. Bethany. Not a creative name. Scene number two, Bethany. We're going to look at verses three through nine for just a moment. So in the midst of all of this plotting of the chief priests and the scribes and even the treachery of Judas, we're told of an anonymous woman, we're not given her name, who anointed Jesus at a gathering in Bethany. And remember that Bethany was a village about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So we see there in verse three, 
that scenario. Jesus is with his disciples in the house of a man named Simon the leper. The consensus is that this man is no longer a leper, but once was, right? And it, perhaps Jesus is the one who has ridded him of that disease. We don't know. But nonetheless, Jesus and his disciples are eating in this man's house. And again, an anonymous woman comes, breaks a flask of very expensive ointment, and anoints Jesus with it. The reaction of the disciples is interesting. We see that in verses 4 and 5. Some of them, they say to themselves, verse 4, indignantly. They're indignant about what's going on. Why, they say, was this ointment wasted like that? This is expensive stuff. Why was it wasted this way? It's not a good use for this. You see in verse 5, we could have sold that and done ministry with it. We could have given it to the poor. Their intentions sound good enough and pious enough on the one hand. And we see at the end of verse 5 that they scold this woman. They rebuke her for what she's done. But then Jesus jumps in, verse 6. He comes to the woman's defense. You see his words there. Leave her alone. It's kind of cool. Why do you trouble her? He says. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Not only is Jesus defending this woman, he's going to go on now and assign a significance to what she has done that is beyond what she could have ever imagined. She is doing this, it seems, out of devotion, out of thanks. She has at least some familiarity with Jesus and his ministry and is grateful to do this. But she is doing more than she could ever imagine. It's a moving picture. Jesus coming in to stick up for this anonymous woman in the midst of this group of his followers. He, it seems, is grateful for her gift. As you observe that, it's kind of a cool thought, right? Like how compassionate Jesus is towards us. How compassionate he is towards his own. His love is just staggering at points like, our devotion to him, I mean, even this woman, this beautiful gift she's giving him, our devotion to Jesus is so weak at times. Our love toward him is so low at times. Our gifts like that we bring him, it's like the stuff that like our small children would bring us, right? Like they grab something out of the trash can and bring it over like gleefully, you know, to give it to us. And deep down, we're like, yeah, that's kind of worthless not the greatest thing I've received today, you know. But because of the scenario and the gesture and the way in which it's done, and because of our imperfect love towards our kids, it's like, thank you for what you've given me. How much more so is the compassion of Jesus towards his people? When we bring our filthy rags, right, these deeds and works that we do, he looks upon them and says, in this sense, thank you. And even more than that, he's going to tell us in just a moment that there's going to be a retelling of the good works done by the saints. There's going to be a retelling of the good things that his followers have done that is pretty remarkable. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Put your eyes back on verse 7. Jesus says that the opportunity to give to the poor will always be there, but this opportunity to give this unique gift to him that this woman has done would not always be there. She has done, he says in verse 8, what she could, 
And then he speaks these words that she could have never understood, that I doubt most people in the room understand. She has anointed me beforehand for burial. He's going to die. Like in 36 hours, he's going to die. Verse 9. And truly I say to you, these are remarkable words, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It's remarkable. Anonymous woman, who knows anything about her life? And here we are 2,000 years later talking about what she did. The words of Christ are true. And what's even more remarkable to think is that I trust in the new heavens and the new earth when there will be a recounting of the deeds of the saints. Her gift, like many others, will be brought forth. And what we'll be doing in that moment as the redeemed people of God, when this anonymous woman's gift is put on display for all to see, we're going to stand on the tabletops and celebrate what this woman did for Jesus. That's what we'll be doing when all of the good works of the saints are recounted. We will celebrate one another. Heavenly reward is not about this nonsense of like whose mansion is going to be bigger. Let's stop talking like that. It's ridiculous. Heavenly reward is about this kind of thing where we will be in line for one person and one person only, Jesus. We're not going to care about Abraham. We're going to care about Paul or pick your favorite theologian. We're going to be there for Christ and we're going to be celebrating Christ and the good works done for him. And when that woman's good work, this gift she gave is brought forward, we will all say what she did was legit. Praise be to Christ. He is worthy to receive all glory and honor and praise and blessing. What a remarkable thought. Foreshadowed for us here, even in Mark 14, in the final days of Christ's life. Scene number three. Scene number three. The upper room. The upper room. We're going to look at verses 12 through 25 together. In verses 12 through 16, I'm not going to read them all again. We've read them once. Preparations are being made for the Passover meal. On Passover, just kind of a brief description of what's going on. We read this in the book of Exodus already. Passover would have begun proper on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish year. That would be the day on which the lambs were sacrificed. And then for seven days after Passover, the Jews were not to eat any leavened bread. They were to remove all yeast from bread. Re- yeast is often an image for sin, right? So that makes sense that we would remove leaven and not eat of it for a week. So the first day, Passover, plus the seven days after, were referred to all together as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that's what's going on. It's starting now. Preparations are made for Jesus and his disciples to eat the Passover meal together. We see here, like we saw earlier with Christ's entrance into Jerusalem, the last week of his life, he says things about how things will go and they happen that way. Jesus just does that all the time. Go and talk to this person and say this to him and then this is what you're going to do and it happens. Cool. So we find ourselves now in the upper room in verse 17. And there is an intense scene that unfolds. So this is an intimate gathering. You sit in a large group of people. This is really the 12, probably not plus anybody else. They're eating together, eating the Passover. And Jesus, 
He knows what's up. He has predicted at multiple points that he would be betrayed. In John's gospel, there are a number of accounts where Jesus talks specifically about Judas. He knows exactly who is going to betray him. They're eating together. Verse 18, as they're reclining at table, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you who's eating here with me is going to betray me. They all begin to ask, verse 19, who's it going to be? Is it me? And he says, it's one of the 12, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me, which would have been all of them, right? I mean, they're all eating together. It's not like Judas is like caught in that moment. You know, I mean, it's just a, they're all eating together. Then verse 21. These are, this is an example, I should say, this verse is an example of how the Bible speaks all the time about the sovereignty of God and yet the responsibility of man. And it just states it very plainly. We learn well from just observing this. We don't need to agonize in our minds right now, but just observe it. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. As it's been written, right? it's foreshadowed in the law, it's written in the prophets, this is going to happen. He's going to be betrayed, he's going to be handed over, he's going to die. Okay, Son of Man's going to go as it is written to him, or written of him, excuse me, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Okay, I mean, this is happening because it's been ordained to happen. This is happening because it's the plan of God. And at the same time, woe unto the man who executes this betrayal. There's no explanation. There it is. Both are true. Plan from before the foundation of the world. And wicked people killed Christ and stand guilty for that. Verses 22 through 25, all still a part of the upper room scene. This is an important piece here. This is the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's an important matter. We read earlier of the Passover account from Exodus chapter 12. We're going to connect those things together. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to say it again very briefly for the sake of people who were not here. The Passover is in the Bible because Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, would one day come to die for God's people. The only reason the Passover is a thing is because Christ was coming. Sometimes we think it's the other way around. Like God sort of built this thing and then he's got to kind of reverse engineer it and fit Jesus into the scheme. No, Jesus is the plan. And so everything that came before him is a shadow and a pointer to him. That's true of the Passover. The particular details of the Passover are that way because they point to Christ, a perfect sacrifice. A lamb. What is Jesus known as? What does John the Baptist call him? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A, a sacrifice, an offering. Blood was shed. And God the Father says that when I see the blood on your house, I'm going to pass over your house. The blood protects you. Just like we sang today that Christ stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. That is why the Passover happened. And so it is no coincidence that all of this is coming to a head. Christ's death is happening at Passover, right? This meal is happening the last night he's alive. 
right? He institutes this Lord's Supper on Passover, right? That is no small thing. Why? Because it is a fulfillment of Passover. Sometimes people in the modern church context with like just sincerely ask the question, okay, like God, like we read today, God told Israel to observe the Passover forever. Forever. Well, we don't do Passover. So what's up with that? Well, the answer is we do. We do observe Passover. It's called this, the Lord's table, right? Because the Passover was pointing to this. This is the fulfillment of Passover. So every time, in that sense, we come to the table, we are partaking of that meal that is representative of what Christ has done. We are receiving what Jesus has done by faith here. And Passover and even this table point to an even greater meal that will happen one day. It's like our brother said this morning. We come this morning to feed on Christ by faith. One day we will eat with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? The Bible is astonishing in how it hangs together. 1,500 years it's written over that period of time. 40 plus authors. It is an incredibly unified story of redemption. And you see this shadow and type and fulfillment stuff happen everywhere. And it's remarkable. It's true of the Passover and the Lord's table and the marriage supper of the Lamb recorded for us in Revelation 19. Just a few thoughts, brothers and sisters, on the Lord's Supper. I, would, I want to take this opportunity to talk about the table because... This is an important passage in Scripture where it's instituted, this meal. Jesus says about the meal, you can see it, verse 22. About the bread, he says, take, this is my body. What does that mean? It's quite clear, just brief observation, it's quite clear that he doesn't mean that this is literally my body. He means this is representative of my body, right? So what does it mean? Take this and eat of it. In other accounts, he says, this is my body broken for you. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to give myself for you. He says also on the wine, you see verse 23, he took a cup, when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, they all drank of it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. My blood is going to be shed like blood was shed in the Passover, and it's going to be poured out for many, namely my people. And my blood is significant. It is the seal of the new covenant promise that God has made in Scripture. This is a big deal. So, friends, the Lord's Supper in our experience. We've commented about these things occasionally, but I want to say this in this setting this morning. The Lord's Supper for us, we do it every week here, and we do that for a reason. The Bible doesn't tell us we have to do it every week, but we do it because our understanding from Scripture is that when we come to this table, to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 10, we participate in the body and blood of Jesus by faith. This table is about our union to Christ. His life is our life. His death is our death. His merits are our merits. His righteousness is now our righteousness. Everything that is his is now ours. That and nothing less than that is what we are saying and receiving and trusting and believing as we come here. 
In the supper, we remember what Jesus has done and we anticipate his return when we will eat that wonderful meal that we just talked about. So even as you come to the Lord's table, it's appropriate that you would think, you know, because of the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for me, I'm going to one day eat with Christ and be with him forever in a perfect eternity because of what he has done. Now, sadly for many people, the Lord's Supper has often been, I think, misrepresented. It's been made more about our faithfulness to God than about his faithfulness to us. It's produced anxiety for many people. The Supper is primarily about God's faithfulness to us. It's about Christ's work in our place. It's about God's faithfulness to his covenant promises that he will keep them. He has always kept his promises and he will always keep his promises to us in Christ. The language of the 1689 London Baptist Confession that we use all the time speaks this way of the table, that it confirms the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death. That it is for the spiritual nourishment of believers and their growth in Christ. That it is a bond and pledge of our union with Christ and with each other. And that participants inwardly receive and feed on Christ and all the benefits of his death by faith. That's what the confession says. So when I use that language, or Ron uses that language, we're not making up something new. It's what Christians have believed. The supper is a means of grace that the Lord uses to keep us in Christ, to sustain our faith, to nourish and grow us in the faith, and to reassure us of our standing in Christ Jesus. The supper, as I said, if you want to summarize it really well, like if you're a note taker, write this down. The supper is about our union with Christ and our unity with one another in Christ, which is why we always take it here. That's why we don't do it in community groups and we don't do it at weddings and things like that because it's meant to be taken as a body. It's a joyful thing. It's a celebratory and reverent thing when we come to the table and those things are not mutually exclusive. Last couple of things I'll say about the Lord's table before we move on is that the table is for sinners, not for the righteous. And the table is for the weak, not the strong. If you think you've got it together, the table isn't for you. You're saying, well, brother, is there any kind of sin that would keep me from the table? Yeah, there is. It's called like hard-hearted unrepentance. If your sin bothers you and you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, come to the table. If your sin bothers you and you're trusting in Christ, come to the table. Because you're forgiven and you're redeemed. You're adopted, you're loved, and you're known. It's a wonderful gift that God has given us. Scene number four. This one will be brief-ish. The Mount of Olives. Scene number four, we're now on the Mount of Olives. We're going to look at verses 26 through 31. We've left the upper room. In verse 26, they sang together and then they depart. Then in verse 27, Jesus predicts the failure of his disciples and the fact that they're going to deny him. He cites the prophet Zechariah. For it is written, you see, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is the shepherd who has been stricken by God 
And then the sheep, his followers, scatter. So this even is a fulfillment of something written centuries earlier. Verse 28, Jesus predicts his resurrection. And again, you see his utter unswerving commitment to his followers. You're going to deny me. But after I'm raised up, after I'm resurrected, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. Jesus remains unfazed. He is committed to the plan of God. Then Peter, in verse 29, speaks up. I'm grateful for Peter. I really am. Peter often, like so many others in Scripture, is just like us. Just like us. So what does he say? Jesus has just predicted this. He's even cited the prophet. And Peter's been with Jesus for a minute, you know? I mean, it's like, bro, you've seen him say a lot of things that have come true. Like, I don't know if I'd question him on this. And he pipes up and he says, even though they all fall away, I'm not going to do it. Confident, right? I mean, really is. Everyone else, even if they fall away, Jesus, I'm not going to do that. And then Jesus in verse 30, like paraphrase, oh, Peter. Peter. It's going to happen three times tonight, man. Three times tonight before the rooster crows, it's going to happen. But Peter isn't persuaded. Verse 31, you see it. But he said emphatically, he just ups the intensity. Like, you know how it is like when you're, you witness people talking and uh, it's sort of like instead of just listening, you just talk louder. You know, this is what's going on in my mind, right? Peter just ups the ante. Like, no, Jesus, I'm serious. Even if I must die with you, I'm going to turn the temperature up. Even if I must die with you, I, I won't deny you. And then he apparently has kind of pulled others along with him, and they all said the same. But we're going to see in just a few verses that Jesus was right. Peter is persuaded that he's got this. We so often are too. We're persuaded that we're pulling this thing off. May we never think that. Jesus knew that his disciples would fail him. He knew that they were weak. He was not surprised by it. And if you think about Peter even specifically in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 22, you could go read that this afternoon. In Luke 22, like around verse 30 or so, Jesus and Peter have a dialogue there when he predicts this same situation. Jesus says, you're going to deny me. But then he tells Peter that I have prayed for you, Peter. I prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And then he even tells Peter in verse 32 of Luke 22. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I'm going to bring you back. You're going to deny me, but I prayed for you. And you're going to turn again and strengthen your brothers when that happens. It's a gripping picture of the reality of our weakness, our utter need and dependence upon God alongside the sovereign grace of God that keeps us in the faith. I think it's a fair observation of this text, even in how Jesus interacts in the moment. After I'm raised up, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. You're going to see me. It's going to be okay. Even there, Jesus did not love his disciples any less because they failed. It's a fair observation. He didn't have less grace towards them. If anything, more grace was required because of their weakness. So too with us. If you ever feel weak, like I'm weak in the faith, in every good way I could mean it, take a number and get in line. 
and join the rest of sinners through history who have known that they're weak. There's a reason why we stand in line trusting Jesus. We trust His strength and not ours. His grace and not our merit. His righteousness, not our righteousness. His faithfulness, not our faithfulness. Scene number five. It's our last one. Scene number five. Gethsemane. Gethsemane. We've arrived in this garden with a name that's interesting that is famous because of what Jesus endured there. So in verses 32 to 41, we have a scene unfold where they, Jesus and his followers arrive at the garden. He asks his disciples to sit here while I pray. He takes James and John and Peter, the sort of three within the 12 with him. He's going to go off and pray. He tells them, I'm greatly troubled. You see this in verse 33. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. So he goes a little further. He falls on the ground and he begins to pray that if it were possible, that he would not have to go through this. We're going to reflect on this in just a moment, the agony of Christ in Gethsemane. So he prays to the Father in verse 36, all things are possible for you, Father. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, what you will. And then he comes back and he checks on the disciples the first time in verse 37 and they're asleep. It's a picture of their weakness, right? He asks them, could you not even stay awake one hour? Watch and pray, verse 38, that you might not enter into temptation. Here this is, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How often does that come up in Scripture? The spirit and the flesh, right? Again, he goes away and he prays some more, verse 39. And he comes back again and he finds the disciples asleep again for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. He kind of included there, he goes to pray again. He comes back the third time, verse 41. Are you still sleeping, he asks. Apparently they were. But he says, the hour's come, it's time. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let's go, because my betrayer is at hand. The agony that Christ endured in Gethsemane, I think gives us a glimpse, perhaps more than anywhere else in Scripture, it gives us a glimpse into His humanity. The humanity of Jesus shines through this text. Remember that He is truly God and truly man. One person, two natures. It's a break your brain. This is the clear testimony of Scripture. right? Truly God and truly man. And in his humanity, he was perfect. So he is perfect, even in his humanity. And even in his perfect humanity, Jesus wanted no part of what he was called to endure. He would submit, though, to his Father's will. Therein we see his holiness and perfection. Any other person, like was prayed earlier, would cave. But not him. The wrestling and the sorrow and the pain was intense, right? He talks about being sorrowful even to death. He knew, Jesus did, he knew what it was like to despair and to be sorrowful. There are many in this room, myself included, that know the same feelings. How many times have you felt sorrowful? How many times have you felt despondent and desperate and alone? 
Sometimes the greatest comfort to believers who are depressed and afflicted isn't to consider heaven. It isn't even necessarily to consider the cross. It is to consider the Christ of Gethsemane that brings comfort, that he knows what it's like to suffer and be in agony and experience the dark night of the soul. Jesus feels for our infirmities and he feels with and for the poorest and weakest and saddest of his people. He's been there. In the Bible is language for the sorrowful. In the Bible is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And in the Bible is a story of redemption through that man of sorrows so that those of us who sit in darkness might know that we will one day see the sun again. Verses 42 through 50, just a few observations here of what goes down. The arrest, as we already thought about earlier, the plan is sinister. The arrest is also, it goes down at night. Why? Because it's illegitimate. You don't arrest somebody under the cover of darkness in this context if it's a legitimate arrest. Judas, we see, betrayed Jesus with an act of devotion. That kind of kiss, rabbi, and he kisses him was just an act of devotion often done in that context. The irony is thick and it's tragic. We see that the disciples panic when the mob comes. Understandable. They panic. They scatter, but Jesus is steady. Let the scriptures be fulfilled, he says at the end of verse 49. And at the end of this scene, verse 50, put your eyes on it. It's a very short verse, very poignant. And they all left him and fled. They all left him. At the end of this scene, Jesus is alone, and he would be for the rest of his earthly life, alone. That final hill he climbed alone, right, to Calvary. No one was with him in his judgment. No one was with him in his pain. The darkest moments of his life, he's by himself. Just a quick comment on verses 51 and 2, just to acknowledge it. It kind of seems like an odd insertion. None of the other Gospels have it. The general consensus on this is that Mark, the gospel writer, is writing of himself here. That he was an eyewitness to this, that he was around this as it was happening, and that he too, like the disciples, fled the scene. Mark, we know from the book of Acts and other places, was a a pretty wealthy, came from a wealthy family. He's wearing a wealthy man's garment, a linen garment. And just the way that it's written, the consensus is that that Mark is writing of his own abandonment of his Savior. So he puts himself along with the disciples. So I want to reflect just for a few moments as we close our time together on this wonderful reality. Christ's agony and suffering has secured our eternal peace and joy. Christ's agony has secured our eternal peace and joy. His agony that he's experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane is not necessarily over the horrible death he would die. I imagine in his humanity, the thought of crucifixion was terrible. I mean, of course that's true. But I know as a child, that was sort of what I assumed was the big deal, was the physical, the physical part, right? The death that's terrible. Friends, there have been thousands upon thousands of criminals that have died that death, not to belittle it, but it's happened to many people. <clears throat> What Jesus is in agony over, what he's warped out of his frame over, 
is the fact that he himself would experience being forsaken by God. He would bear the wrath of God against the sin of his people in total. He knows that. That's the agony. I think of the fifth verse of a song that we sing here sometimes called Come Ye Sinners that goes this way. View him prostrate in the garden. He's laid out. On the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? Suffice what? To save you. Yes, it will. When you're troubled by thinking about the depth of your sin, think to the magnitude of the sacrifice that was made for your sin. The life of the Son of God is more than enough to atone for all of the sin of all of God's people of all time. Jesus entered into our God-forsaken state so that we might share in His perfect relationship with the Father. How remarkable is that? He entered into our God-forsaken state so that we might enjoy and know His perfect relationship with the Father. And thank God He has, because we are all weak like the disciples are in this text and throughout Scripture. Our spirits are willing, but our flesh is not able. We have the desire to do what is good, but not the ability to carry it out. We delight in the law of God and our inner man, but there's another law waging war against our spirit, resulting in the fact that we don't always do what we want to do. We have hearts that are prone to wonder. We often desire things that are wrong. We are bothered, troubled, and haunted by sin, which could be said, every day of our lives with the Apostle Paul, wretched men and women that we are. Who will deliver us from this? Who will deliver us from us? Right? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation. It's the gospel, man. because of Christ and Christ alone and what Christ has done in the place of sinners, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who trust in Christ. Surely nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? It's because of his love for us, not our love to him. The love of God toward us and the grace of Christ toward us is scandalous. It's offensive to us. For all of us who are like Peter, like, nah, bro, I got this thing. It's offensive. The greatest freedom in the world is to come to the end of yourself and realize that you don't have it. To come to the end of yourself and realize, if if I need to pull this off at all, ain't gonna happen. But then to know, because the Bible tells us so, that everything has been accomplished. It's the greatest freedom in the world. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It's the words of the apostle Paul. So the kind of parting shot, friends, here, and the parting shot might be a few minutes long. I just want to love you and tell you that. 
is that Jesus has secured your eternal peace and joy. And that's relevant. We started by thinking about, is the Bible relevant? Is the church relevant? Yeah, it's relevant. Eternal peace and joy secured for you is relevant. So you guys know I'm kind of a music person. I'm very eclectic in my taste. I, I realize that I usually probably reference R&B and hip-hop in your midst. I listen to more than that. I like rock. And occasionally, perhaps to my shame, I do indulge in some country music. I did this week. I don't listen to a lot of country. I don't like a lot of it, but I like some of it. And there are particular artists that I really enjoy. And so I was listening to some stuff toward the tail end of this week that was moving to me. And some of the lines in the songs prompted me to think about the many, like, really good things in this life. If country music does one thing well, it's often that. Small, simple things, right? So many of these things are just that, ordinary and simple. But the love of family and friends, the sweetness of relationships, of a marriage, of children, as one song put it, a, a cup of coffee and a sunrise. It's sweet. The crispness of fall. The pleasure of good food and good drink. Sitting around a fire with friends. Maybe memories of wading in creeks and playing in the woods as a kid. High school football, for crying out loud, right? Hitting hitting golf balls or shooting guns or compound bows or whatever your thing is, riding dirt bikes, family dinners, weddings, or even just the gift of music and how a song can move you. Those are good things. But then as I was listening to this music, some of the lines in these songs like gripped me. I was emotional about it because of how fragile and fleeting this life is. Those good things that we experience, they can be gone like that. There is no such thing as security in this life. It's an illusion. You never know when everything is going to change and not for the better. You never know when tragedy is coming. Scary things happen in this world. Own that. Scary things happen in a fallen world. There's a reason why our kids get afraid of things. And there's a reason why we as grown people are afraid of a lot more than we want to admit. Loved ones die and relationships end and people have to leave each other for any number of reasons. And so here's the thing. My country music meditation, right? That Christ has secured for us peace and joy that is of the greatest kind that will never go away. He has secured for us peace and joy that is of the greatest kind that will never go away. We will experience eternity forever and ever and ever in joy and peace and safety and nothing but good will be our existence forever. I can't imagine that. I'm sure you can't either. It's the promise of scripture. Nothing will ever change for the worse. There will be no possibility of pain or suffering. We will never again have another single haunting feeling, ever. We will never again be afraid, ever. 
Imagine that. In all of the tears that we have cried, in Psalm 56, 8, God puts them in a bottle, he knows. Revelation 21, he will wipe them all away. We will never, think about your life and how hard it can be sometimes and, and how to your own shame and grief, you wrong other people. You'll never do that again. We will never wrong another person ever again. We will never lose anything or anyone ever again. We will eat together. We'll drink together. We'll celebrate our God and Redeemer together forever. We'll be with Jesus. He will be our greatest treasure and joy then. All the time. We want him to be now, and so often, if we're honest, it's like, that's not true. He will be then, all the time, our greatest treasure and our joy. And like I said earlier, just get rid of this nonsense about, I can't wait to meet Paul, and I can't wait to meet Abraham. You're not going to give a rip about them. When we get there, we're going to be in one line, and it's going to be for Christ, because he is it. He is the point. We joke sometimes about the fact that people, just a quick aside, talk about heaven like it's like Disney World and there's all the lines for the various characters, you know? Like that's the line for Abraham and Paul and David's over there and, you know, pick your, pick your favorite. It's not how it's going to be. They'll be in line with us. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame and that we will share in his joy. He tells us that in John 14 the last night that he's alive with his disciples on earth, he tells them that they will share in his joy. There is no better kind than the joy of Christ. We are brought into it through our union with him by faith. This gospel is a scandalous message. You hear it and you're like, that's too good. It can't be true. But it's true. What a savior Christ is and how great is his love for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Because so often, the things that your word says, if it wasn't in there, we would never believe it. And then even looking at your word without your spirit, we know that we would never believe it. And we thank you that many in this room have trusted in Christ, have believed the gospel. We pray for all of us sitting here that we would trust Christ. We pray that as we thought about the Lord's table today, that we would be mindful as we come forward this morning what we're doing. We pray that you would continue to minister to us through the bread and the juice and the songs that we sing. Cause us to see Christ in all of these things. Continue to build us up. Continue to remind us of the fact that we're safe and secure. And continue to remind us of the joy that we have been promised with you forever. And we thank you for these things. And Jesus, we thank you for suffering in our place. And we pray in your name. Amen.